Welcome to the church that worships here at Bethel Baptist. For everyone who's watching online with us, for everyone who is here in person, uh, and also for those of you who are new or new-ish, uh, you are our guests, and we simply want to thank you for being here. Uh, we believe you are here. We believe you're listening online because God has brought you to this place to know His love and glorify Him forever. So if you are a long-timer, uh, let's invite our new guests today. Let's welcome them to Bethel. It's interesting who claps. Some of you can still consider yourself new. I'm like, no, you're not new anymore. Um, so I get to see who's paying attention to that today. Uh, so we are continuing our worship through the book of Revelation. And in a couple of weeks you will no longer hear that bumper music because we're going to transition to Christmas. Not this week or next week, but three weeks from now. But we have been looking at the book of Revelation. And we see that what John is offering to us, the writer of the book, in the first five chapters he's answering the question, the eternal question, who is worthy? Who is worthy to open the scrolls? Who is worthy to judge the world? Who is worthy to bring in and usher in this new heavens and this new earth that God says would be here? And we know that there is no one found in any, any place in creation. Not in heaven or earth or under the earth that is worthy to open the scroll. But John says, do not let your heart be troubled. Because there is one who is worthy. And he is the Lamb of God. The one who was slain, but he didn't stay in the grave, church. He's, I saw a lamb as though slain, but he is risen. And then John answers for the next 14 chapters, from chapter 6 to 20, he's answering the question, who can stand in the judgment of God? And the answer really is the same. There's no one who is worthy to stand and look God in the face and say, God, I am worthy to be in your presence. That's why Jesus died, because it is the blood of the Lamb that covers us and makes us worthy. And in chapter 21, everything changes. Before we get to that, I want to share a story that Oz Guinness shares, his pastor. It's really a sad story, a tragic story about a, a famous poet from Japan. He was a haiku poet known as Isa. And this, this man experienced many tragedies in his life. As a young man, he lost his mother. And as a middle-aged man, he, he lost his daughter, his young daughter passed away. So despondent, he goes to his Zen master and he's he looking for peace and solace. And this is what his, the Zen Buddhist master reminded him of. He said, Isa, remember what Zen Buddhism teaches us. That the world is an illusion. Like the morning dew, our lives will evaporate with the rising sun. Although Isa remained committed to his Buddhist worldview, he, he yearned for something more. Something more than a vapor or a dew. But when he returned home, we still have these words, he penned the following words. The world is due. The world is due. And yet. And yet. That's how the poem ended. I think many of us can relate to this poet. Because you look back at your life and it's broken and it's difficult. And for many of us, Thanksgiving is a reminder of those who are not there. And it was a day of joy, but yet a week of sadness because you say, God, there has to be something else. 
But the Christian worldview teaches us that our world is not a vapor. It's not imaginary. We don't just vanish. Life might be as temporary as a vapor, but it is real. You see, the Christian worldview teaches us that our world is broken and stained. And now in Revelation 21, we find what the hope of every Christian has been looking for. So if you have been looking for peace, if you've been crying out and saying, God, I've experienced tragedy, what else is there? Revelation 21 is the time where your and yet's and yet become one day soon. Because for the Christian, we don't have to wait too long. Because there's a deep hope living in each of us that Jesus Christ provides. So let's look at Revelation 21. Because everything changes in Revelation 21. There is no more Satan. He has been bound. He has been thrown in the lake of burning sulfur. If that wasn't enough, God threw death in the lake of burning sulfur. God threw all the unrighteous there. And now those who have said yes to Jesus Christ receive the reward of what they've been longing for for their entire life. I'm going to read a short portion. And then we'll read the rest later. Revelation 21 verse 9 and 10. Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, we live in a stained and broken world. But we believe, Lord, that our lives are much more than dew that vanishes when the sun hits. Lord, we believe that our souls last forever. And Father, we long for this new Jerusalem and this new city. The new heaven and new earth when Lord, when what we have hoped for for our whole lives, what you have promised, will one day be seen and realized. Father, would you give us a taste of glory divine today. That you would stir our imaginations towards heaven. You would stir our hearts towards you. And Lord, that we would see that what you promise will one day be realized when Jesus returns and makes everything new once again. Lord, we long for the heavenly city, but until you come, we will be satisfied with your spirit living in us. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Today's message is simply entitled, The New Jerusalem. As we've read... John's vision of the new heaven and new earth begins with an invitation from an angel to come and see. Now, as we read, what angel is this? It's not Michael or Raphael. This is very clearly, we don't have his name, but this is one of the angels that did what? It's the same angel that had... The bowls to the seven plagues. It's as if God does not want us to forget about that. It, and many of you, like me, have, have wanted to say, God, we've, we've passed through the plagues. 
Can't we just forget about it now? The, the difficulty and the, the harshness of, of what we receive for our sin. This is John's way of reminding us that sometimes we just think, Lord, we just need to pass through the judgment until we can get to your love. As if we had to pass through the fire and endure it. But what if you and I will never experience the love of God unless we know the holiness of God? John is saying, church, you can't divorce the love of God and the mercy of God without His holiness and His judgment. Because God is holy and He is love. And those two things are linked together. And I think this is John's subtle reminder. Don't forget how God treats sin. Because God is holy and He is love. And both are true. You see, Yahweh's grace is, not, is always linked hand in hand with His righteous decrees in this new city. So the angel invites him to come and to see. And look at verse 9 again. The angel says, Come, I will show you the, the bride. We haven't even made it to the city yet, to the new Jerusalem. He says, I will show you the bride. Earlier, John saw the marriage supper of the Lamb, and he envisions the bride of Christ. It's the church. It's clearly the bride is the church of Christ, wearing bright and pure linen. And this represents the redeemed people of Jesus. So you don't have to wear a suit to get into heaven or a Hawaiian shirt, but you do have to wear the linen clothes of the redeemed, which are bright and holy. It's the reminder that the new Jerusalem, which we're going to talk about shortly, is a place and a person. You see, the new Jerusalem is called the bride of Christ because it envisions and represents the people of God. So if you only see this as a physical metropolis, you're missing that this new city also is a picture of the people of Jesus. So as we see in detail, remember, God wants you to know Him and be righteous as this city is in its splendor. But Revelation describes two cities. For some who have been tracking with us through the book of Revelation, you remember that the Bible describes the city of Babylon. And I don't know if you remember what Babylon is wearing, that city, or what that looks like. But Babylon also has gold and silver and jewels and pearls and fine linen. It's as if Revelation is describing a tale of two cities. There's the city of the world that looks flattering. But that gold, when you wash it, becomes tarnished. Those pearls look good, but they're imitation. Those jewels look beautiful, but when you take it to the store, you realize that they're fakes. You see, the world only wants to imitate Jesus Christ. But the city of Babylon will never, ever compare to the city of the New Jerusalem. And we're going to jump into what this New Jerusalem looks like. It's the reminder in Scripture that you cannot live for the world and live for Christ at the same time. You can't, be, you can't have 
dual citizenship in the city of Babylon and the city of Jerusalem. You have to be adorned in the blood of the Lamb. So church, if you say, well, I love Jesus, but I just don't look like it right now. You can't have it both ways. You can't look like Babylon and expect to live in Jerusalem. And we can't live in Jerusalem and expect to look like the world. And John is reminding of this. And so when we see the city, remember that the city also represents the bride of Christ. He said, well, who's the bride of Christ? If you have given your life to Jesus Christ, that's you. That's you. And that's me. By the blood of the Lamb. So let's jump into the city. I've been whetting your appetite, right? Verse 11 to verse 21. Hold on with me because I'm going to read a lot. This is the city. It comes down... Actually, let's back up to verse 10. He carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me a holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God. It was arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The city had massive high walls with 12 gates. Twelve angels were at the gates. The names of the twelve tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates to the east, to the north, to the south, and three gates to the west. The city wall had twelve foundations, and the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. The one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. So let me just pause there real quick. God's tape measure is made of gold. Think about that. As if he's, he tells the angel, go find something to measure with. And the angel comes back with a stick. Hey, I found this gold thing. And God says, that'll work. How more infinite worth is God Almighty to anything the world can imagine? I, I just love the fact that God's like, I, I measure stuff with gold. You treasure it, I measure things with it. The city, verse 16, is laid out in a square. It's linked with the same. He measured the city with a rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are all equal. Then he measured its wall 144 cubits according to the human measurement which the angel used. The building material of its wall was jasper and the city was pure, was gold clear as glass. And you say, well, what is gold clear as glass? I don't know. Because it's gold like we've never seen before. This is a a rarer gold than the gold God uses as his measuring tape. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first is jasper. The second, sapphire. The third, chalcedony. The fourth, emerald. The fifth, sardonyx. The sixth, carnelian. The seventh, chrysolite. The eighth, beryl. The ninth, topaz. The tenth, christophros. The eleventh, Jacinth, and the twelfth, Amethyst. The twelve gates are twelve pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. Now, the gates aren't made of multiple pearls. That's one huge pearl. And God's like, I still don't care. Because nothing can compare to the worth of Jesus Christ. The main street of the city was pure gold. Transparent as glass. Again, God is paving his streets with gold asphalt. 
What in the world is this city? If you can only remember one thing, it's not the gold, it's not the pearl. If you can only remember one thing, remember what the city is arrayed like. Verse 11, this city and all its jewels and all of its splendor is arrayed with God's glory. What a peculiar way to describe a city. Some of you love Birmingham. And I would say, tell me why you love Birmingham. And you would say, because it's the magic city. Some of you love Tuscaloosa. And I would say, please tell me. (laughs) This is not supposed to be a joke. Why you love Tuscaloosa? And you would say, because some of the greatest memories I've ever had in my life were in that town. Or Auburn, or Starkville. And some of you are saying, please tell me. Why would you love or New York? We all have those cities in our life that bring fondness and joy and majesty. But I would venture to guess that none of us would say, well, I love this city because it is arranged and arrayed in God's glory. And I believe we would never say that because we, we have a difficult time describing God's glory, don't we? Because even if you said, well, Birmingham is it's arrayed in the glory of God, I would say, well, tell me about that. I don't know, it just sounds good. We struggle with the glory of God. And it's amazing to me that we, are, we see described God's glory by a heavenly vision. There was a lady named Fanny Crosby, blind, because of a medical procedure that went wrong early in childhood. And Fanny Crosby was one of the greatest hymn writers the world has ever known. 9,000 hymns. So you think you've done something in your life? 9,000 hymns. And I want to I read some of the words to her hymns. Fanny Crosby, someone who's blind, says this. To God be the glory, great things He hath done. So loved He the world that He gave us His Son, who yielded His life our redemption to win and open the life gate that all may go in. She says, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear His voice. Later on in that same hymn, she says, but purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our transport, when Jesus we see. This is someone who's blind, describing the glory of God. What did Fanny know about God's glory? What does John see in his vision that he knows about the splendor and the glory of the holy city? I don't know. But one day in Christ we will see. But do not miss the point that the new city is arrayed in the glory of God because it reflects the glory of Yahweh. There's a catechism that says this. What is the chief end of man? It's to 
glorify God and enjoy Him forever. John is simply saying to us, listen, it's not the jewels, it's not the pearl, it's not the gold asphalt or the gold tape measure. The city is to image the glory of God. And John is saying to us, church, this is your job. I believe if God were to describe us, He would say, you know that the, the gold that the world values? Josh is worth so much more than that. Do you, do you know the pearls that, that people wear? One day there's going to be a pearl of great price. And Lewis is worth more than that pearl. He said the city is so much more valuable because it images the glory of God. Church, this is our job. This is what we should be doing. The beauty and the majesty of the city have no rival. There is no magic city that compares to this city. But one day we will see. We see that this city has a massive high wall. To those reading in Asia Minor, they, they would know that the greatest tool of any Roman legionary unit was that they could siege any city in the known world. There is no city in the known world that had a wall high enough that could stop Rome. And to the world's forces, John says, this city in verse 12 has a massive high wall. There is no empire and there is no satanic force that can besiege the majestic city of God. What a great joy to this city. This new Jerusalem has 12 gates. And these 12 gates have 12 names. They are named after the 12 tribes of Israel. But that's not all that we see. There's 12 foundations. And these foundations are named after the 12 apostles. And the city measures with a rod of 12,000 stadia, which is 12 times 1,000. And it's then measured its wall. And the wall is 144 cubits, which is 12 times 12. The new city is the gospel on display. It's the story of God throughout time. It's the reminder that God spoke to Israel and they were his holy possession with the 12 tribes. And then God sent his one and only son, Jesus the Messiah. And Jesus collected these these individuals from Galilee. Some were from Galilee, some from other places. He didn't go to Harvard or Jerusalem. He went to the commercial fishing village. Because if I were God, that's where I would go to get the best. But Jesus told them, if you drop your nets and stop fishing for fish, I will show you how to become fishers of men. And those 12 men became the 12 apostles. And this holy city reminds us that God has been revealing Himself to the world throughout history. But it doesn't stop there, does it? Because if you have given your life to Jesus Christ, your hope and your faith is based on the teachings that were given to the disciples. And so you, you church, you are a continuation of the mission and the story of God. So when you see this city, 
we're a part of the building. Because the foundation that was laid by the 12 apostles is lived out today by your faith in Jesus Christ. What a great reminder of this beautiful, heavenly city. You are a part of God's continuing story. Maybe one day we'll find in a small gate, in a small pearl, or maybe on the streets of clear gold, our name etched. This says Joshua's here because he was mine. I worked through him. I revealed myself through him. He was arrayed in glory to a world that did not know me. But his faith was built upon what was given to the apostles. Church, this city is your story. Now, I've given you much of what the city has. I want to tell you what the city does not have now. Look at verse 22. John says, I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are His temple. To the church reading this for the first time, they would say, that could never be. We are longing for the temple again. Because God, if there's no temple, there's no presence. You see, somewhere along the way, the people of God forgot the reason for the temple. In Israel's existence, God let them build a temple as a reminder that His presence was there. But Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 7, looks at the people and he says, Woe to you who, who say, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You see, they were putting their hope in a building and not the builder. They were putting their hope in a place, in an institution, and not the presence of God. And I know we never do that today. I know we're much better than Israel, right? How dare we? We would never trust in buildings and institutions and religion and rules. We would never do that. We always get it. But there will be a day. Where there will be no temple. Because the temple always pointed people to Yahweh. And now, in the new heavens and the new earth, the whole world is his temple. He is dwelling with people because they are fully righteous. There is no presence of sin for anymore, it is completely abolished. I long for that day. Church is not a building. It's the builder. It's not a place. It's the presence of God. And if you have given your life to Jesus Christ, this building only becomes holy when the people of God, indwelt by the Spirit of God, come into this place. I think the building longs for the, the Lord's day when we gather Because then it says, Lord, now I'm something. I'm not holy until your people come. And you're with them. And Lord, now I'm arrayed in your glory on the Lord's day. Because your church has gathered. I long for the day where the Lamb will be its temple. But there's something else missing. 
Look at verse 23. Not only is there no temple, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. Because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the Lamb. Another curious effect. Because we, in every day of our life, depend on the sun. Some of you mark your time by the sun. That's me. When it comes up, I get up. And when it goes down at 5 p.m., I'm like, Lord, it's time to go to bed. (laughs) I've been old from birth. I'm okay with that. We get our food from the sun. We get our refreshment from the sun. When it gets darker sooner, the rates of depression rise. Because we live our life by the sun. We get our essential vitamins for life by the sun. But church in the New Jerusalem, there will be a sun like you've never seen before. It'll just be there. It's like a nightlight. The sun and moon will be there, but that will not be our light. Because the Bible says the Lamb is the light. The New Jerusalem reminds us that life can only be lived in the light of the Lord because He is our light and our salvation. That's what Psalm 27 tells us. It's the same reminder that John gives us in his gospel that in Christ was life and that life was the light of man. New Jerusalem is just a a fuller rendering of what God has told us from the beginning. Yes, we need the sun now, but we need the S-O-N more than we need the S-U-N. And there will be a day where the new heaven and new earth is realized because Jesus is our life. I long for the day to see Jesus as the lamp of the world. But we have one more source in this new heaven and new earth. And it's actually two sources. Look at verse 1 of chapter 22. Then, now can you imagine going through the city and thinking, wow, look at the gold. Wow, look at the pearls. Wow, look at the height. It's a cube or is it a cube? The, The 12 gates. Oh, the tribes. Oh, look at the apostles. Can you imagine John's like, there's my name. That's my foundation. And then the angel said, no, there's still more. And John's like, there's the sun, but it's not shining. There's the moon. And the angel says, there's still more. Then he showed me a river. The water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And you know, I would have, I would have gone Gideon on that water, so I'm going to stoop down and start drinking. That's why I didn't write Revelation. Down the middle of the city's main street, the tree of life was on each side of the river bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. Don't you long for that? The healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. It didn't say a curse or some curses. There will not be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be the city and its servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the lamp, because the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever 
and ever. Both Zechariah and Ezekiel imagined this day. Ezekiel 14 says, On that day living water will flow out of Jerusalem. Half of it towards the eastern sea and the other half towards the western sea in the summer and winter alike. The new city will be a place of abundant life. I can prove it to you. I don't need to, but I will. In the Garden of Eden, what was the source of life? A tree. The tree of the life, the Bible calls it. But in the new heavens and new earth, there's not just a tree of life, but there's the river of life. It's abundant life. Church, you will be more alive in the new heaven than you can ever imagine. I believe John is trying to describe it. He, he, he says, if you can really imagine the life that Jesus brings into you and the abundant life that he will give to you, you've never seen anything like it before. The new heaven is a source of abundant life and where life is found, curses are broken. He says there will not be any curse. Part of the healing of the nations is that our curse from sin is broken once for all. In Genesis, Eden is the tragedy ending in a divine curse because of sin. And finally, through the Lamb of God, the curse of sin is redeemed and removed. I love what John Wesley says about this. He says, There shall be no more curse, but pure life and blessing. Every effect of God's displeasure for sin is now totally removed. Totally removed. I can't even imagine this day. But one day, I don't have to imagine. We will experience it because of Jesus Christ. Not only is it a source of life, not only is the curse removed, but he says this, that we will see his face in verse 4. Again, a curious saying. In the ancient Near East, criminals would be banished from the king and would not be allowed to look up and see his face during trial. As if to say, you are not worthy upon your sentence to look at the face of the king. Not even Moses in the Old Testament could see the face of God. God said, I'm so holy and pure, you can see my back. And you know what? If God's back is good enough for Moses, I'm okay seeing God's back. There's a priestly blessing in Numbers chapter 6. The greatest blessing that they could pronounce upon the kingdom. And it says, may the Lord bless you. And may he cause his face to shine upon you. But it never says, may the Lord let you see his face. And now the greatest blessing imaginable is realized in the New Jerusalem that you get to see His face. Something Moses never experienced until his death. We get to see this. Scholars call this the, um, the vision beatitude because it's the most beautiful blessing that John could ever see. Can you imagine seeing the face of God? Let that sink in. Hey, you're not Moses. I'm not Moses. 
And one day we will get to see his face. Face to face. It is impossible to describe since none of us have ever experienced it. This is the new Jerusalem and the promise to all who believe. But let me remind you, church, at this point in Revelation, it is too late to enroll yourself in the book of life. For those who have not said yes to Jesus Christ, they will not experience this. Because the only way to be a citizen of the new Jerusalem is to have your eternal passport. Your name has to be written in the book of life, and that is only written by the blood of the Lamb. It's too late in Revelation, but it's not too late for you. If you've never given your life to Christ, you think, well, why does this even matter? Because if you do not give your life to Christ, you will not experience His presence. The opposite of heaven is hell. And I am convinced that hell is what it is because God's presence is not there. But it's not too late for you. God has you here to listen to His Word because He is inviting you like He invited John. To say, come and see. So today, would you turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ? If you've been putting your hope in a church, that will not get you to heaven. If you've been putting your hope in a temple, or the sun, or morality, there is nothing that you can do that would help you experience the new heavens and new earth. Only being redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Would you come to Jesus today? The invitation is still extended. Come to Christ and find joy. Come to Him and find that He will break your curse. Come to Him and find protection. Come to Him and you don't have to live your life in the and yet, and yet. You can live your life in the one day soon. Come to Jesus Christ today. You say, Pastor, I don't know how to do that. I will be down front and pray with you. I will stay down front after the service. Come and see. But I can't save you. Jesus can. You can pray a prayer that sounds something like this. God, I know I have sinned and I do not deserve the new Jerusalem. But I believe you sent Jesus to take my place. To die for my sins. He didn't just die. I believe he rose again. So Father, forgive me. Today I turn from myself and I turn to Jesus. Not just today only, but I will follow Him for the rest of my life. you know how God responds to the prayer of the repentant heart? He says this, Josh, come and see now. See what I have prepared for you because of Jesus. Come to faith today. For the Christians among us, The new Jerusalem should stir our hearts. I don't know how we read this and read it with arms crossed as if it doesn't matter. I read this and say, God, really? And I don't think that the words, even in Revelation, do it justice. I think one day we're going to get to heaven and say the abundant life is more than I could have ever imagined. I think we're going to be running back from, I think we're going to eat of the tree, we're going to get thirsty and drink of the the river, and we're going to go back and forth and say, God, you did this for us? 
What joy there is for those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. How do you respond to the Word of God? I think we respond in this way. Lord, soon and very soon, we will go see the King. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the King. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the King. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We are going to see the King.